Oh, good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. I trust that your week has been good in spite of all the restrictions that are going on and the conditions that we find ourselves in. Um, I had the opportunity to do some random phone calling with people in our community this week and uh, had some great uh, conversations and some great prayer requests. And again, um, if you haven't received the call and you would like one, contact the office and say, hey, I want a call. And we would gladly love to uh, make some contact and to see how you are doing and, and to even pray with you. On another note, I am absolutely thrilled to announce that we have hired Mike Mundy as our dire- uh, discipleship director. And uh, Mike was already serving part-time on staff here under the title of internship director. And now as a discipleship director, Mike will continue to oversee the sole internship, but will also undertake a variety of our pastoral obligations and most notably the administration of our life groups. Uh, Mike has a pastor's heart, if you don't know that already. He is administratively gifted. He has a heart to see people take that next step in faith, and we're so glad to have him on the team. And uh, this is a whole new full-time role for him. And uh, he starts with us this Monday. Um, as well as uh, coming alongside uh, Pastor Jordan McClellan because this will be Pastor Jordan's last week with us. And if you haven't had the opportunity to say goodbye and to say thank you, I really want to encourage you to do that this week, of course, through social media or even give his cell phone a call or send him an email and tell him how much you've appreciated him and his ministry here. And we bless him as he and his family move to Saskatoon to take on an entirely new role. Now, We're continuing our look at 1 Corinthians, and we're coming to the end, finally, right? Uh, We're going to see the author, who is Paul, the apostle, make a radical change from where he was just at in a doctrinal presentation to now a very practical one. In chapter 15, uh, he discussed the resurrection in great detail, and I have to give a shout-out to both Jordan McClellan and Jordan Michalski for doing all the hard work in presenting that teaching. It's, it's no easy job. It was difficult for them to do so. And so Paul now ends his letter with several exhortations in regard to giving, doing the Lord's work, faithful living, and love within Christian fellowship. Now, today I've entitled this life lesson, um, Shaking Down the Sheep. All right. I was going to call it fleecing the flock because we're talking about money and whenever the pastor talks about money, there are people on the other end of this where they get their shorts in a knot. And the fact is, when it comes to money, when you think about it, workers earn it, spendthrifts burn it, bankers lend it, others spend it, forgers fake it, taxes take it, dying leaves it, heirs receive it, thrifty save it, misers crave it, robbers seize it, rich increase it, Gamblers lose it. We all could use it. And I think I'm going to resign as a pastor and go and start a rap career. Yes? No? Thumbs up? Thumbs down? Anyway, Paul here in chapter 16, he writes, and he opens it up. He says, now about the collection. Now, let me stop right there. Now, I don't know about you. Excuse me. I don't know about you, but I've I've seen it all when it comes to church offerings. So much so that it scared me and much of what I've experienced um, came to light when we started this blueprint of of, uh, Soul Sanctuary. And this is actually one of the reasons why we have joy baskets here in the church. You know, 
that we don't here at Seoul take an offering, but simply encourage people to give. And giving is a huge part of the Christian life. As a matter of fact, Jesus encouraged generosity. And the first disciples, they collected an offering. And the Apostle Paul goes on eventually in, in 2 Corinthians. He says, God loves a cheerful, a hilarious giver. And hence we have our joy baskets. Hilarion, joy. And Paul taught us that collecting money to support the church's mission should be done with integrity and that believers should respond with generous hearts. It's, it's, they go hand in hand together. But even in those days, some Christians resisted the idea of giving to God's work and others used strong-arm tactics to, to get their hands in people's pockets, so to speak. We're still dealing with the problem some 2,000 years later. As a matter of fact, here are some of the most reckless tactics used today to raise support, funds, collect money in a church that I've witnessed when it came to the pastor literally taking up the offering or at times what I would affectionately call the Sunday morning shakedown. Other people will call it the Sunday morning stick up. But either way, here it is. One that I believe that almost all of us have had the variety. If you've been in church at some point in time, you've probably, regardless of background, you have probably experienced what I would call the endless appeal. Now, this is where some people, some preachers will drone on for about 45 minutes or even longer in order to just simply collect an offering. And when they actually are able to do that, it probably takes another 15 minutes or so to pass the offering place, or in actually some cases, buckets. I've sat in these meetings and, and I find myself boiling within because the, this type of behavior is not only insensitive, it's also rude and it reveals actually a lack of faith on the part of the leaders. And what I've realized in my ministry is that you don't have to talk people out of their money or hold them hostage until they give out of frustration. And I've learned that I've had to trust God to supply the need rather than begging people for it. Maybe you're familiar with what I would call the salesman shakedown. You know, these are the slick preachers who are known by their uncanny ability to get people to open their wallets. But I would say that these fundraising skills are more akin to those of a street hustler than a minister of the gospel. They promise magical benefits to those who give large amounts. They'll set those deadlines. And I even heard a preacher suggest that if people gave right now, if you give right now, your unsafe children will find salvation amongst other promises that he threw out there. Can I say this? Never give in response to this type of manipulation. Paul taught us. He says, what, when you sow, you'll reap. And in the same passage, he also said that if we sow to the flesh, we will reap corruption. That was in Galatians. If you give in response to the prompting of the Holy Spirit, you will be blessed. But if you give because a preacher twisted your arm or he used pressure tactics like pinching his children on stage until they cry, your gift will not be blessed. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, he says, don't uh, give grudgingly or out of necessity. One individual came to Seoul a long time ago. And uh, I'm very open to missionaries. I have a, obviously, if you don't know me, I have a heart for missions. I have a heart for what people are doing across the world. And uh, he came to visit, and I said to, said to him, I said, hey, listen, let us give you an honorarium for your visit. And he declined the honorarium. He says, no, 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 um, I would like to raise an offering, if that's possible with you. And, of course, you know here at Seoul, 
We have the joy baskets. I explained everything. But if you wanted to raise a special offering or people could designate their funds, then I said, go ahead. Um, but then I said to him, but if I were you, I'd take up the honorarium. <laughs> well, against my advice, he made his presentation. He passed out his literature. He appealed to our community. That week, I received a phone call from one angry missionary who literally said to me, what's the matter with your people? Don't they believe in missions? I was a little floored by what I heard on the other end. I asked why he said that, and he reported to me that he only received 150 in his donation appeal. That is only $150. My response to him was, well, actually, Seoul is a very generous church, and missions is our forefront. They just didn't buy what you were selling. You should have taken the honorarium. Well, needless to say, he's never been back. See, in a certain segment of the Christian world, there, there is also this other style of giving that I call, amongst other things, the give-to-get trade-off. You know, there, there is no question when I look at Scripture that God blesses generous people. No question. And if you keep your hands open to God by giving, He will open a channel of blessing onto you. But God is not a slot machine. And His goodness is not for sale. Never believe a preacher who says you can buy the Holy Spirit's anointing. Never follow a preacher who guarantees that you'll get a new house or a new car or whatever if you just put a certain amount in the offering plate. You see, there's also what I call those who participate in the Holy Spirit auction. Numerous times I've heard preachers announce that they need a certain number of people to give, you know, $250. Is there somebody who can give me $250? And he waits for hands to go into the air. Then the next one he needs is $500. Is there somebody who can give $500 gifts? And then it goes up to $1,000 and so on. And within minutes, the church is like a cattle auction. Do I got $250, $250, $300, $350, $50, $55, $55, $55, $55, $55, $55, $55, $55, $55, $55, $55, $55, $55, $55, $55, $55, $55, $55, $55, $55, $55, $55, $55, $55, $55, $55, $55, $55, $
pastor then took up a second offering because the men were told that the women were beating them. They gave more money than you did, men. Now you have a chance to redeem yourself by giving more generously. And so they took up a second offering. And then, they, of course, they announced the totals after it was counted and celebrated the fact that the men won. See, we often forget that Jesus rebuked the Pharisees because they liked to blow trumpets in public to announce that what they were giving to the poor. He told them in Matthew, he says, when, you're, when you do your charitable deeds, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your charitable deeds may be done in secret. Can you imagine Jesus asking rich people to stand and give their large checks while everyone in the audience applauds them? As a matter of fact, he actually pointed out a poor widow and he raved about her tiny gift. Been in a service where I call it the judgment call. It was a very interesting service as I remember it because I actually cringed when I heard the pastor tell people that they would be under a curse if they didn't tithe. I personally don't tithe to appease God's anger. As a matter of fact, I think we should give more than a tithe because we love to share God's goodness and that we should never put a guilt trip on people while collecting offering. The church is no place for threats. Zacchaeus was a greedy tax collector, but Jesus did not attack him for his thievery. As a matter of fact, Jesus extended mercy and this melted Zacchaeus' heart and turned him into a lavish giver. And sometimes as pastors, we act timid about collecting offerings, maybe because the world thinks all Christians are fake and all pastors and churches want is their money, and it's all about money. And I have to admit, I, I know I have personally felt this way. I even have a category for which I call myself, which was the pathetic apology. I'm sorry, but I have to take up an offering. I have to admit, though, I have learned not to apologize for this. It's taken time. We're involved in the greatest mission on planet Earth, and God Himself supplies the funds needed to evangelize the world. When we give, we are actually engaging in a holy process. And God is just as much involved in the offering as He is in our worship experience and as He is in the preaching of the Word or the demonstration of the spiritual gifts. God allows us to be his vessels to give, and then he rewards us abundantly so that we can give more. You know, the church has been sustained for over 2,000 years by supernatural giving. He is in our midst, and while we seek to become more generous, let us learn to be more faithful in the way we steward God's money. We've now come to chapter 16, the last chapter of 1 Corinthians. Paul brings us rather abruptly back from the future. From the end of chapter 15, he brings us back into the present world, back into something as mundane but just as important like giving to God's work. And however the life to, to come is not unrelated to the life that's here on earth, for whenever God gives us a glimpse of the future in Scripture, it's always for the purpose of helping us to live 
in the here and now, and we saw that in 15. You, if we were to eliminate the chapter division, it's rather striking here how chapter 16, Paul moves from these great and lofty themes of the resurrection where we can almost hear the trumpet ringing in our ears, and he suddenly stops it and says, and now concerning the collection. which proves that money is not to be separated from the great spiritual entities of Christianity. As a matter of fact, I go on, I say it's very important. This whole chapter really grows out of the 58th verse of chapter 15 where Paul is exhorting us to, to always be abounding in the work of the Lord. And so out of, that, out of those themes comes chapter 16, including giving, because giving is one way where we can abound in the work of the Lord. Now, Paul talks about money. Some Christians and others would seem to wish that we would never talk about money, especially when it comes to our responsibility towards others. These verses here are there. These verses are here because the Corinthians needed to hear them. And I would suspect that we need to hear them just as badly. So let's read together. Starting at verse 1. Now about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I'll give letters of introduction to the man you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. So Paul's talking about the collection that was being made in many churches to send back to the trouble, to the discouraged, to the afflicted church in Jerusalem. And this is actually a theme that's very close to Paul's heart. He mentions it in several of his letters. He's very anxious that these Gentile churches scattered in the Roman world should have a part in meeting the needs of the afflicted saints in Jerusalem, the Jews. And this is actually a beautiful picture of the way the church is, is actually one over all the earth. What happens to our brothers and, and sisters in other corners of the earth is and ought to be of immediate concern for us as well. And so Paul exhorts these churches here in Corinth and, and others to meet the need. There's a need. We need to meet it. And in the process of doing this, he gives us some wonderful principles to govern in our giving. And I think the fact that Paul speaks of a collection indicates that the church at Corinth already knew about it. The offering was probably mentioned in the letter uh, that the church had written to Paul earlier. Uh, you can go back to chapter 7, verse 1. Um, and, and this is why we now have 1 Corinthians, which is Paul's reply to their questions. And Paul also solicits other contributions to this collection from other churches in Galatia. And now he's asking the church in Corinth to do exactly what he had told the Galatians to do. And the purpose of this offering was to help relieve the poverty that was being experienced by the Christians in Jerusalem. And again, extreme poverty was, was common in the early church, and it still is in, in many cases in many parts of our world today. And because of Jerusalem's religious importance, it was often overpopulated, especially during times of special feasts and special celebrations, so that those resources were continually strained. And to make matters worse, 
Some years earlier, there would have been a severe famine, according to Acts 11. And, uh, of course, the people are probably still suffering from that. And on top of this, the Christians in Jerusalem had been persecuted now for, for many years. So you had this economic plight, and, and now you have these series of persecutions against the Christians themselves. And many Christians were put out of their homes. They were stripped of their possessions. They were prevented from getting any but the most menial of jobs. And some Christians were even imprisoned, according to Acts 8 and 1 Thessalonians 2. And we know from the book of Acts that the church was very generous in supporting one another. They shared everything that they had in need to the point of even selling their property and possessions. And yet, those resources didn't last indefinitely. And so besides meeting the economic needs of the Christians in Jerusalem, Paul wanted the collection to express the, the, the spiritual oneness of the church. The believers in Jerusalem were predominantly Jewish, and most of the believers in the churches that were asked to contribute to the collection were Gentiles. Therefore, we have now Gentiles giving to Jewish believers and that would help strengthen the bonds and unify these two groups because God doesn't have two churches, Jewish and Gentile, but rather he has one church. And this collection would help cement that truth and express it in practical ways. So giving and receiving from others is a really a sure way of us forming bonds between the giver and the receiver because uh, you can't share gifts with actually, without sharing fellowship. It brings us together. And so I studied this passage and I had a few takeaways I want to share with you first. First, you'll note that giving is a universal practice. It was not just something that Corinthians had to do. Everywhere Paul went, whenever he founded a church, he, he taught them to give because giving is an essential part of Christianity. It's actually not an option. It's something that every Christian just does. I think we have to remember the words of Jesus. Freely you have received, freely give. Matthew 10.8. Now, if you haven't received anything from the Lord, then by all means, don't give anything. Keep your money. You know, we, we, don't, want, we don't want it if God has not moved in your life. But if God has, remember, you could not have bought that for any amount of money if you think about it. If you receive some the gift of forgiveness, the gift of healing, or something of your home, or of your marriage, or whatever it is, without charge to you. You know, God has blessed us freely. You have received, so freely give. Because giving is essential for a Christian. Giving is the very essence and breath of Christianity. That is why we give of our time. That is why we give of our treasure. That is why we give of our talents. We give. Secondly, we see that Paul encouraged that giving be practiced regularly, and in this case, specifically weekly. I think this is one of the first indications we have in the epistles that the Christians by this time of the writing had begun to gather regularly and worship and pray and give on the first day of the week, which was Sunday. The Jewish day of worship, of course, was Saturday. It actually began on Friday night, right? Friday evening at sundown. But now we see through these letters, we see these Christians have begun to worship on the first day of the week, the Sunday, which was what? The day of resurrection. So it's no accident that this paragraph follows the great themes of the resurrection of chapter 15. 
the, the, the essence of the new life in Christ is, is that it is a new beginning. It is life on a different level entirety. And so the Christians worshipped on that day because it was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And so Paul gathers this whole matter of giving. He associates it as, as flowing out of their wonder of the resurrection of Jesus and their worship of a risen Lord. It's almost like hand in hand. Third, Paul basically shows us that giving is a personal act. He doesn't actually leave anybody out. You know, when you think about it, even children are taught to give, right? Maybe when they come to Soul Kids here, they, they only leave a few pennies, a nickel or dime or a loony. But on a, every Sunday, there ought to be an opportunity for people of all ages to give. And listen, it's not the amount that's important at all. It's the regularity of it. The fact that there's a continual reminder that you have freely received, therefore we freely give. Now remember, Paul's talking to a culture who got paid every day. That's how it worked there. They would then go home after their paycheck and they would put aside a certain amount of money so that on Sunday they could have a larger amount to bring to their services, their gatherings, and be able to contribute to the needs of others. Now this principle, of course, is that they had an objective or maybe they had something to uh, help determine what they were going to do. They weren't merely giving to nothing or to everything, but they had determined that they would have a part in a very specific need and they were going to give regularly to meet that need. And I think this is very important, especially for us today. Because I find some people today only respond to emotional appeals. And, and well, let's be honest, there are thousands of them. You know, we get them in the mail. You, I get them on email. I get them on social media. I get them in phone calls. And, and again, all these appeals, the majority of them are legitimate appeals for help. But what I stress is that many of these also need to be investigated as to who's responsible and how do they handle their funds. There are a lot of charlatans in this field making appeals, building fortunes on the gullibility of Christians who will give to anything without looking into it, without investigation. But here, Paul says that the Christians should make a decision and have a definitive objective in view. And then Paul says, give according to the way that God has given to you. Give in keeping with your income. You know, if God has poured out generously, then give generously. If you're having a hard time, if you're barely making it, well then, your gift can be reduced proportionately, right? Uh, it can be very little because, listen, God is, is really not interested in the total amount of all. He's only interested in the motive of the heart when it comes to giving. And that's why Jesus said of the woman who gave two tiny coins that she had cast more than all the other rest in, in, in Mark chapter 12. This proportion is to be based on your awareness of how much God has given to you and how much the motive of your heart has been stirred by the gifts and grace of God. And again, we need to be clear that Paul is not prescribing a legalistic requirement so that every Sunday we have sorted you know, our money in, in such a way that we have something to put into the joy basket. You know, even though we all get paid, you know, bi-weekly, monthly, quarterly, yearly, whatever, it, and for many of us, it's more convenient to give through direct deposit, right? Paul's point, Paul's point 
is that giving is a regular part of worship to God and therefore our offering either placed in the joy box at the back of the auditorium or given directly from our bank account should be seen as part of our worship to God. Our giving should be motivated by our desire to worship our God and therefore our giving should be considered and and not just done thoughtlessly. Now I need to add that Paul is not talking about a tithe. A tithe means 10%. And in the Old Testament, the Israelites were told to give a tithe. Now, they had to give 10%, and it didn't matter if you were poor or if you were rich. And again, 10% to a poor person would, you know, could be very difficult for them to give, whereas 10% to a rich person may never be missed. Uh, there has arisen, unfortunately, in certain Christian circles, the idea that God wants his 10%. He wants his tax, so to speak. And then you can do whatever you want with the rest, and you can indulge yourself to the fullest. That, actually, that teaching is actually contrary to the principles in the New Testament. Um, if God has richly blessed you, then increase the percentage of your giving so that you go from 10 to 20 to 30 to 40 to 50 and so on. And as a matter of fact, there are Christians I know of today whom God has richly blessed who attempt and their goal is to, to give 90% of their income away and actually live on 10%. And so nowhere in the New Testament do you find tithing taught or laid upon Christians. The tithe is a starting place and proportionate giving is actually taught. You know, for God doesn't give us wealth in order just to lavish ourselves in more abundant measures, right? But rather we get so that we can share it more abundantly with those around us who have pressing needs. If this simple principle was actually grasped, thoroughly grasped, amongst believers globally, I think the needs of Christendom would be met easily. Um, especially because people would be given to God as he has prospered them. And that is really Paul's goal. He just wants people to give and to be generous. And, and uh, this is one of the reasons why he actually goes on to state that when he comes to visit the Corinthians, that no collections will have to be made with them. Why would he say that? Well, I think he knew that when he was personally present, that he had a tremendous impact on people and he didn't want their giving to, to come because they were moved by his preaching or they were moved by his stories of what God had done or in any other way or have any other pressure associated with it. He didn't want to have any extortion, so to speak. And literally, what he, that's what he says in 2 Corinthians when he, when he comes and he deals with this subject again. I think when, it ta- when you take a look at it, giving to God reveals our heart And money is the chief competitor of the Christian faith. Except for generous Christians, giving has been reduced to what I call a mere tipping. And many times giving to God becomes almost an afterthought with the leftovers that we have. See, giving is something that needs to happen for eternal purposes without a selfish motive in it. It needs to just be regular. And Paul teaches us an important lesson on sharing resources with other Christians who are in need. Churches and Christians sharing resources is actually a symbol of unity. And members of the church at Corinth needed to step up to the needs and to the members of the church in Jerusalem because they are a part of the body of Christ at large. A relationship gets established when one gives and another person receives. 
when they share with those who are poor and needy. When we do that, we reflect Jesus. And Paul teaches that Christians must care for the poor and needy. That It's not something that is imposed, but it needs to become spontaneous. And in fact, I would add to it that when we do care for the needy, it is actually a fruit of our salvation. So what's our practical application? Paul is open and direct when he speaks about money. There is no question what Paul is talking about in these verses. There is no doubt that he wants the Corinthians to give. And all too often, people are actually after our money today. And when they are, they actually are not upfront enough to tell us why. We may have a strong suspicion that something is coming, but they don't tell us. And, but Paul here is very direct. He's upfront about what he expects of us, of what he expects of the Corinthians concerning giving. And to be honest, I want to do the same with you today. You can say amen or ouch, I don't know. Paul's not writing to help raise an annual budget for the church in Corinth. He's not writing about missionary support, although he could have. He's not seeking to enhance the building fund. Paul, what he's doing is he's writing to the Corinthians about a specific church, the church in Jerusalem, which is greatly impoverished. And I want to address the same issue with you today. There are two very pressing items I want to bring to your attention. The first one, if you've seen it last week, you'll see it again, is that we want to assist Living Word Temple here in our inner city of Winnipeg and reaching out to their community this Christmas. And so, as we've done in many years, we're in cooperation with Operation Angel Tree, and we have committed to help 12 families in the North End with a total of 30 kids this Christmas with food hampers and with some gifts. That all costs money. Secondly, in the small impoverished country of Iswatini, formerly known as Swaziland, there is a great need before us. I have come, I've presented this need to the church in the past, and right now there is a care point that is struggling. The care point is the one that I shared upon. It is located next to the dump. It's called Manguanini. I talked about that. It moved me. It moved Sharon. Currently, the government is allowing the church there to distribute and prepare food at the care point. And then the kids can come and they can pick up the prepared food and then they can take it home. But the amount of food being used by the care point is much bigger and much higher because now they're not only just providing for the kids, but now they're also providing for the kids' families. And you add to that, now new children are showing up because their parents have lost their jobs or in some cases haven't been paid since March. It costs about $980 a month Canadian to service the minimum for this care point in Manguanini. Here's my ask. Would you consider donating to one of these two or to both under the heading of Christmas? You can give online under Christmas or you can text the words Christmas to 84321. You can drop off your gift, your donation here at Seoul. And it's just that simple. That's my ask. I have a number in my head that I would love that would meet the needs of both um, Living Word as well as uh, Manguanini. 
And I'm looking to you and letting the Holy Spirit speak to you. And if you're a believer today, I just want to urge you to give, not only for the benefit of this body and its ministry, but also for your own benefit. And if you're not a follower of Christ and you're watching and you're bent out of shape that I've been talking about money, I need to say this to you. There's nothing that you can do to earn God's favor or to contribute to your salvation. Giving money to the church doesn't get you into heaven. It doesn't get you, you know, I get into heaven free card or whatever. Spiritually speaking, we're all bankrupt. We have nothing to offer God with our debts. And I'm not talking financial. But Jesus Christ paid our debt on the cross of Calvary. And if we acknowledge our debt, if we acknowledge our sin and receive God's gift of salvation through the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're forgiven. We're forgiven our debts, right? Part of the Lord's Prayer. We're forgiven our sin. We're given eternal life. We're given new life. We're given life more abundantly. Our sins are forgiven by His death and resurrection. And according to Scripture, His righteousness is now transferred on us. Do you see all the giving that's going on here? And we're born again. And we have what is called the gift of salvation. And really, that's all I can offer to you, is that you would take this gift that Jesus offers to you for free. And honestly, as a pastor, I'd rather have you give your life to Jesus than you send any money. And I'm just being straight. Now, if you're serious and you want to talk further regarding and making a faith decision, I'd invite you to call or text, you know, the 226-7254 number. We'll gladly talk with you. But I leave that with you. You've heard my call. Let's pray. We're going to move into communion in just a moment. Uh, if you haven't, run to your kitchen to take a hold of uh, something liquid and something in bread form of sorts. Please do so. But before we do that, let's pray. Lord, your goodness and your generosity in giving us all we need, I pray that you would help us to praise you. In every circumstance of life, in the good times and the bad, help us, God, to trust you. In love and faithfulness, with all that we have and all that we are, God, just help us to serve you. And as we speak, as we write or listen to those who are nearby or far away, help us, God, to share your love. In our plans, and our work for ourselves and our plans and our work for others. God, help us to glorify you in everything that we do. And finally, Lord, in every thought and every word and every deed, by the power of your Holy Spirit, this week, may we live for you, O oh God, I pray. Amen. I'm caught up in your presence and I just want to sit here at your feet. I'm caught up in this holy moment and I never want to leave. I'm not just here for blessings, Jesus. No, you don't owe me anything, more than anything that you can do. I just, I just want you. It's all about Jesus. And what we're about to participate together in is really an ancient tradition that is fulfilled, that's filled with emotion and meaning and huge theological significance. And so before we participate together, let's just pause and reflect on what is written on the screen in front of you this morning. He himself bore our sins 
and His body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. And by His wounds you've been healed. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin in the flesh. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Everything we have is in Jesus. He gave it to us. He provided this celebration that we call the Lord's Table, Communion, Eucharist. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul wrote, For I have received from the Lord what I passed on to you, The Lord, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In remembrance of me, it's used twice. It's interesting because the table is centered around Jesus when you think about it. Now, how do we remember? What are some of the ways that we can do that in remembrance of me? I think one of the ways that we can do is that we can look back. We can look back at what Jesus has done for you and for me. You know, I look back, I realize all the things that Jesus has done in my life, that he has forgiven me that he's given me a second chance, that he's restored my life, that he's helped me in some situations, that he's brought healing to my body, that he's been there for me when other people have walked out of my life. And so you look back to how good God has been. But we don't end there. We also look within. I think communion is a time for us to look and examine our life within Lord, is there anything in my life that's not pleasing to you? If there's something that has been a disobedience or God, I feel far from you, can you just remove it? God, I've drifted from you. You know, we look within because of what Jesus did was he made a way for us. And there's that one line that I love that Jesse just sang for us and that song was, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know, we remember that it's the Lord. It's not my good works. It's not my do's. It's not my don'ts. It's Him. He paid the price so that I can have relationship with Him right now. And what has ever happened in the past or even this week, and and, and you may feel that you don't deserve that, and that's okay because none of us do. It is who He is, though. He is the good, good Father that we sing about. And so we look back, we look within, and we also look ahead. 
We know that Jesus is our Redeemer. He is our healer. He is our hope. He is our everything. He is coming back again. And we can trust that with all our hearts. And that's what we do when we have communion together. We look back, we look within, and we look ahead. Let me encourage you right now, embrace this moment. This is your time to have your encounter with Jesus. And we do this and we experience this together. For some of us, it's just ourselves in our room behind a screen. For me, it's just in our auditorium by myself in front of a camera. Maybe you have your family around you. But we're all in it together. And remember this, that Jesus is the heart of the church. And as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, he is coming soon. And so on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it. He said, this is my body. Healing, peace, restoration, reconciliation, our hope, our future. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the bread. We thank you for the body. We thank you for what you did for us. And so, Lord, we just thank you that there is healing, that there is hope, that there is strength. Lord, we thank you that you put us back together again. And we receive this and we think in remembrance of that. And we are looking back and we're looking within and we're looking ahead in remembrance of you. In Jesus' name, I pray. Let's take it together. And the same night, he took the cup and he lifted it up and he said, this is the blood of the New Testament, this new government, this is forgiveness, this is a new beginning, this is a fresh start, this is the difference in eternity and this is what he did. Let's pray. And Lord, we just thank you for the blood that was shed for our sins. Lord, I thank you that we can say again and again that we need you, Jesus that we are nothing without you. And across church life, and no matter what has gone on, we thank you. And so, Father, we thank you that there is forgiveness of sin, and we pray right now that you would lift the shame, that you would lift the guilt, that you would lift the heaviness off our life, God, because of the blood of Jesus. Lift it in Jesus' name, I pray. Let's take this cup. Let's be worshipful and thankful that it is lifted off our life. Do you need prayer? Do you need connection today? Don't hesitate to reach out and contact us and we will respond as soon as possible. I want to thank you in. For, I want to actually thank you for tuning in and uh, I want to ask you to please consider helping us minister to the people of Living Words and to the kids in East Swatini. And just before our worship team sings us out with the blessing from the roof upon my request, our world is thirsty for, uh, for people of good news. You've received good news. You've been called, you've been equipped and embodied good news. And you, you know, would you receive a blessing so that we can be people of good news in a world that is so desperate for grace? And if so, 
In ancient times, the one who blessed extended his hands for the blessing. Those receiving a blessing did likewise. Here is my blessing for you, soul sanctuary. Today I ask God to bless you with grace in these times. May your body receive restful sleep and nourishing food to maintain your health. May your anxieties be alleviated by the knowledge of God's goodness, faithfulness, and above all, God's nearness. May you encounter extraordinary thoughtfulness that is the best of humanity. And may you find your own empathy and concern for others each and every day. And above all, may you experience the peace of God in the middle of this storm we find ourselves in. The peace that believers long before us described as passing all understanding. Go in peace, wear a mask, wash your hands, love your neighbors, and live the church in a socially distant way. Be blessed. Now watch this.